Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. And he's going to actually, preach. or actually, we're going to do something different that we've done very rarely. Thank you, Jeremy. In the history of Refuge Church, for you old school church people, this is what we call the special music. And so, this is a song that's relevant to uh, the scripture, our time in the in the in the scripture study that we have today. So, this is a song that kind of tells the the story of the of the people of God of the Old Testament going from Moses as they look forward to a king. And we've and we've been talking about this series of. Um, as far as the curse is found, of, of God making a covenant with his people and continually binding himself to this people and ultimately sending one who would, who would rule over them in the, way of a, in the manner of a servant, uh, and that's Jesus. And so, uh, no surprise there. But we want to sing this song, uh, which I think kind of lays out the story, and then Joel's going to come up and talk us through. your people are home so long Moses so hello Joshua goodbye Canaanites we're coming to town 12 tribes and no crown no crown oh Lord we want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist Will there ever be, ever be a king like this? So hello Saul, the first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, so you didn't last long. Goodbye Saul. Shepherd from Bethlehem set the temple of God in mighty Jerusalem. He was a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been, ever been a king like this? He's full of wisdom and full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Hero Israel, was ever there a king like this? scattered abroad for how long oh Lord so speak Isaiah prophet of Judah 
can you tell of the one, this king who's going to come? Will he be a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Full of wisdom and full of strength, the hearts of the people are his. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Isaiah said, he'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised, a man of such sorrow that we'll cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness and carry our tears, and for his people he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel, and by his wounds story is, what you just heard, is the exact story that I'm going to be telling this morning, so <laughs> get excited. My name is Joel, I'm one of the elders here, and we're continuing on in our sermon series called Far As the Curse is Found, where we're tracking through kind of the big story that we find in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in this story, we see our God who is going forth redeeming and restoring his rebellious creation. That's the storyline that we're tracking through. And we're tracking it through this series of events and series of people in which God is doing something big. So this story is really relevant because it's showing God's character, how he works in time, in space, through people to bring about his purposes. Last week, we actually hit a very important part of the Old Testament. Trey walked us through how in the middle of God establishing his covenant, his people, his nation of Israel, Moses asks for something big. So the people of God are, are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and he asks God, show me your glory. It's kind of this pinnacle point where scripture is driving to. And what happens is God says, okay. He tucks Moses away in the cleft of a rock and his glory, his presence, his power passes before Moses, and he declares his name and his character. And what he's doing is he's saying, this is who you are in covenant with. This is who your covenant God is. And it's this description of God's character that we built up to, 
and that's now going forward, this is the God who we see playing out in all these stories in the Old Testament. So this is our God saying, this is why you can trust me. And so this morning, we're going to move past Sinai, through the wilderness, all the way up until God establishes the kingdom of Israel. We're going to see how God rules and reigns over his people as the covenant-keeping God. We're going to see how he establishes his kingship over his people through a king. And we're going to see how this king is supposed to lead God's people toward covenant faithfulness. So there's a lot that we're going to track through. There's a lot of time that we're going to be looking at. There's a lot of stories that we're going to be kind of glossing over. But my hope this morning is that you see who our God is and what he is doing in establishing his kingship over his people through the king of Israel. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Father God, we thank you that you are good and gracious and loving to us, a wayward people who do not deserve your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you pursue us in spite of our sin, and we thank you that you are loving and merciful. I pray that this morning, as we see how you have worked in time and space and history through the people of Israel, I pray that we see your character revealed And I pray that we see and we long for and we trust in Jesus, the High King, who has fulfilled the kingship perfectly. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is our King. Amen. So, I'm going to be telling lots of story, kind of, as we're going through here. So, kind of sit back, relax, enjoy. So, we start off our story. Moses and the people of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They receive the commandments, they receive the law, they receive kind of God's establishment of them as a nation, as a people, and they head out from there. God is leading them by a cloud and a pillar of fire, and they're following after God as he's leading them. And from the very start, as they go into the wilderness, things do not go well. The people of God grumble against him. And against Moses, against the leadership that he's put in place, they say, man, why did we ever leave Egypt? We at least had food there. God won't even provide food. And God gets really angry with the people. He says, why don't I just wipe them off the face of the earth and restart? And Moses pleads with God over and over and over again not to destroy the people of Israel because they don't trust God. They've seen all these things that God has done. Remember, these people that are tracking through the wilderness, this new nation of Israel that God has instituted, these are the people that that cried out to God for help in the land of Egypt, being oppressed, and God sent ten powerful plagues against Egypt to rescue them. He pulled them out of slavery. He led them through dry land, parted the sea so they could walk through it. He's destroyed the army of Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world at the time, all to save this people for himself. And he brought them to Sinai, where they saw his power in a fire cloud on the mountain and were afraid. This is the people that are tracking through this wilderness and are like, God's not going to take care of us. He doesn't love us. This is what's going on. Immediately, when the people of Israel leave Mount Sinai, they begin to rebel against God. I don't know about you, but when I read that and when I see that, I'm like, What in the world's going on here? How can the people do this? How can they want to go back to Egypt? How can they want to go back to oppression? How can they distrust 
and dismiss their God, who they've seen act in these mighty ways. It's mind-boggling. I have a friend who I talk with on a regular basis about, about faith. He's not a Christian, um, but he, oftentimes he says something to the effect of, if God really wants me to believe in him, then he's going to show up in a mighty way like he did in the Old Testament. And I, <laughs> I always say to him, listen, the people in the Old Testament saw it, and they didn't believe either. This is us. We're just like the people of God. We're naturally discontent about God's work in the world. We discount what we've seen him do in the past. The story that we see in the people of Israel trekking through the wilderness and distrusting God is our story as well. It's our human condition when we're faced in diff- with difficult, cer- difficult situations and circumstances We don't trust in God naturally. So, in this story, the people of God rebel against him over and over and over again. And so he forces them to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if you're wondering, okay, but maybe it was a long ways away to get from Egypt into the promised land, I can tell you it would be probably less than a year of traveling, even though it's a large amount of people. And so God instead makes them wander the wilderness over and over again for 40 years until the generation that grumbled against him in the wilderness dies off. So at this point in the story, the people of God have wandered through the wilderness, a generation has died off, and they're about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Moses at this point, he... God lets him see the promised land, and then Moses dies. Moses doesn't get to enter either because he disobeyed God. And Israel enters into the promised land, the land promised to Abraham under the leadership of Joshua. They go through, they conquer the land, they settle down to enjoy God's blessing. So in the story, I would normally think, okay, great. They're about to settle down. They're going to recognize God's care and provision in providing the promised land. They're going to experience God's blessing. They're going to keep the covenant well. And that's not what happens at all. Once again, we come into a time where we see God's people rebelling against him again and again and again. So we're at the point in the story where it's the time of the judges. Um, So this is late 2nd millennium B.C., And what God is doing is he's continuing to refine and form a people for himself, even though they're a wayward and rebellious people. So the people of Israel, instead of following God and keeping his covenant, we see them continuing to rebel against him, breaking his covenant, pursuing other gods. So I'm going to read from the book of Judges. This is in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And this is the description of this time period. So the time period of the judges, which is a fairly long time period. This is uh, the description of what's going on throughout this time. The people of Israel rebelling against God. So verse 11 says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. 
And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord, always being generous to his people, raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by, the, by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is the cycle of judges. To be honest, it's really the cycle that we see over and over and over again in the stories in the Old Testament. It's the cycle of rebellious humankind against God. So this is the cycle. This is what we see going on in the book of Judges. Things go well for the people of Israel. It goes so well that they think they don't need God, and so they break covenant with God, and they go and worship other gods. God then brings judgment on them, primarily through foreign invaders. They cry out to God for deliverance. Echoes of Exodus here. And God hears them. He sends a judge to save them. In this way, God is being ruler over Israel, even though they're rebellious. He is king, and he appoints judges to help rule and lead the people when they cry out to him. It's a cycle over and over again of obedience, covenant disobedience, foreign oppression, repentance and a cry for deliverance, a judge or a deliverer being sent, military victory, and this cycle happens 12 times in the book of Judges. It's a lot. And with each story, you kind of think, okay, they go from obedience, covenant disobedience, all the way back to obedience, and it's kind of this, this cycle. But instead, it's really a cycle downward, where the people of God, as this, as this kind of cycle continues, get worse and worse. They become more and more sinful, more and more depraved, worse and worse in covenant disobedience, until you get to the, actually the very end of this, of this cycle. And the last story is about uh, the people of Israel doing all sorts, of, all sorts of sexual sin to this prostitute and the judge taking her dead body and chopping her up and sending her to the four, corner, four corners of Israel. It's a really horrible story. And, you, and we see that the people of God have continued to descend into sin and depravity and kind of near the end of Judges, uh, in chapter 20, 21, we kind of see why, why the author says the people of God are continuing to descend into this depravity. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in the time of Judges, we have this loose confederation. They come to, together to defend themselves. But beyond that, they do what they want. There's no consistent, centralized figure who helps point the people toward covenant-keeping. There's no centralized figure that executes justice in the land. 
The judges primarily are there to help stop foreign invaders, but after that, they're generally more like regional leaders. There's no cohesive leadership within the people of Israel. And the author in the book of Judges is saying, if there was a king, he would or should lead the people in covenant faithfulness. If there, is a, if there was a king, he would or should execute justice based on the law. But without a king to make this happen, the people will do whatever is right in their own eyes, hence the downward spiral of depravity throughout the time of the judges. This is a huge chunk of time in the life of the people of Israel. And remember what I said, this is the same for us as well. Without someone leading, caring for us, pointing us toward covenant faithfulness, we too, like the people of Israel, will continue to spiral down into sin and depravity. So back into the story. So thinking through kind of what the, what the author of Judges is saying here, doesn't that kind of contradict what's going on? Because isn't God king over his people? Having an earthly king isn't God's plan, right? Maybe the author of the book of Judges got it wrong? No. If we read carefully the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' kind of last command to the people of God before they go into the promised land, it's his recounting of the law, the covenant, what they should be doing when they enter. When we read through Deuteronomy carefully, we actually see that God's plan all along has been for him to establish a king over his people. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you pass it, Possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are, that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again." And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read, it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, God wants you to have a king. But the most important thing about this king who is to come, that God will set up, is that he knows God's law, that he keeps God's covenant, and that he leads the people in covenant-keeping. God also lays out what a covenant-keeping king should look like. He must not rely on his own military might, all this discussion of horses. He should not rely on military alliances with other nations, many wives. And he shouldn't be greedy for silver or gold, oppressing the people to make his name great. Instead, a good king should fear God and keep God's covenant. In essence, a good king is one that recognizes that God is truly king over his people. And a good king will lead the people in covenant faithfulness to God. So this is God's plan all along 
to give the people a king. And lo and behold, just as, prophes- just as prophesied in Deuteronomy, the people of God approach Samuel, the last judge, and ask him to give them a king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is what we see. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, thanks, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out, up out of, the land, out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the way of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel outlines how a king is going to oppress his people. And then jumping down to verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the Lord, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. The people think that by having a king like all the other nations, that they're going to be safe from these foreign armies that they're scared of. Verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The problem is they don't realize that their covenant unfaithfulness is what's bringing foreign armies against them. These foreign armies, these invaders, they're a judgment from God. They believe that their problem is external to themselves. It's just these nations that are trying to invade us. We need to stop them. We need a king to do this. So when God says that they have rejected him, it's not because he didn't want them to have a king. Deuteronomy shows that this was his plan. Instead, it shows that they are trying to solve problems without God. They want to escape from God ruling and reigning over them. They want to escape from God bringing judgment on them. And they think that the king will fix their foreign invader problem with military might. In reality, what they need is a king who leads them in covenant faithfulness to God. It's covenant faithfulness that will fix their foreign invader problem. Once again, this is the same thing that we do. It's our sinful human condition. We rebel against God's good authority, against his covenants. We try to fix our situations without turning to God. And this is deeply ingrained and hits all aspects of our lives. So back to the story. Samuel goes and obeys God and anoints the first king. But notice God's words to Samuel. This is verse 22. Obey their voice and make them a king. In essence, give them what they want, but this king will not be my choice. So God leads Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And this is to meet the demands of the people. Listen to this description of Saul. It's pretty exciting. So this is 1 Samuel uh, chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, 
a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Man, this guy has to be a great king, right? He's the son of a wealthy family. He's handsome. He's very tall, probably very good uh, in terms of leading the people and fighting. What more could you ask for? This has to be the king that the people of Israel need. I want to point out that this probably escapes most of us, but the original readers would have immediately noticed that there's a problem in this description. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's a problem. Why? Well, when the patriarch Jacob, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so when Jacob gives blessings to his sons, who will, be, who will found the 12 tribes of Israel, he prophesied a specific blessing over, the, over Judah and his descendants. This is Genesis chapter 49. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. From the description of Saul at the very beginning, we know that Saul is not God's choice for king, and we know it is not going to go well for Saul or for the people who have, who have wanted this king. It's interesting, though, as the story progresses, we actually see at the very beginning, Saul seems like a good king. He goes through and he organizes the national defense against foreign invaders, and he seems to be following after God, listening to Samuel's voice, the prophet, and pursuing, pursuing what a good king should do. But over time, as the story continues, we begin to see that he's more interested in his career and his success and his lineage staying on the throne than he is about keeping God's covenant. Ultimately, what he does is he forgets whose kingdom this actually is. This is God's kingdom. And he forgets who he actually works for. He works for God, not himself. Once again, it's the same cycle that we see in story after story, except this time it's focused on the king and through him the nation of Israel. Things go well as they fight against their enemies. Saul the king thinks his success is his own doing. He disregards God's voice through the prophet Samuel. He disobeys the covenant and leads the people to disobey the covenant. And God brings judgment through the Philistines, and they slay Saul and his son Jonathan. Early on in kind of this progression, Samuel even warns the people that the king might lead them astray. And when he does, he will bring judgment on them. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, he says this, And now behold... The king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Saul is the king that the people wanted. But as Samuel warns here and as comes to pass... He's really a bad king. He leads the people away from God, away from covenant faithfulness, and in doing so, God brings judgment on the nation. Enter a new king. First king Saul is the people's choice. 
the second king is really going to be God's choice for a king. And as God regularly does, he doesn't choose the firstborn or the powerful or the flashy. Instead, God chooses someone who simply trusts in him. It is David, the youngest son of Jesse. And let's be clear, David leads the people toward God, but he is not sinless. He is not perfect in covenant keeping. Maybe you you remember uh, the story of Bathsheba, the woman David sees, and he's like, yeah. And so he has her come to him. They commit adultery together. David tries to cover it up. Doesn't work. He has her husband, Uriah, murdered. Marries Bathsheba, and he thinks he's going to get away with it all. That is until God, who sees everything and knows the hearts of all people, sends Nathan to confront the king, to confront David. And in that story, when Nathan comes and confronts David, we actually see why David is God's choice for king. It's not because of his power. It's not because of his might. It's not because he is righteous and holy. But it's really because David repents when he is confronted with his sin and turns back to God. The God that declared his character to Moses, as we read last week, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God that David returns to. And this is why we see that he is God's choice for king. He throws himself at God's mercy. So David penned many psalms. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that he pens after he's confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It is through David, the king who points people to repent and follow after God's covenant, the one who demonstrates proper fear of God, the one who repents when he transgresses, that God will use to continue this overarching grand story of redemption. God covenants with King David to establish his throne forever. It's through David's lineage that the true king will come, the king that will lead God's people into true covenant faithfulness. Every king to follow from David's son Solomon, the last king of the United Kingdom, to Hosea, the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel, to Zedekiah, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Everyone, all these kings, about 40 in total, will be compared to David because David, David's heart was toward God, toward repentance and faith. Spoiler alert. Out of all 40 kings of both kingdom, about six-ish, somewhat follow after God, and God eventually says, that's it, I'm bringing full judgment upon my people. And he sends foreign armies to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah disperses the people. And yet, God's covenant faithfulness remains. God covenanted with David that through his lineage, a true king would rise. 
And this is integral to the story that God is telling. Through David's line, the true king will come, the one who leads God's people to true covenant faithfulness. And he does this ultimately by fulfilling the covenant for his people. Instead of the people of God experiencing judgment, the righteous king, the true king, takes their judgment on himself. And in doing so, he explains the perfect character of God. He, disp- he displays God's merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the story of our God redeeming his people. We see God working in real time and real history, bringing Israel king, but also pointing forward to the one who will be true king over all of his people. When Jesus, the son of David, arrives, we see what a true king looks like. King Jesus keeps the covenant perfectly for his people. King Jesus bears God's judgment for his people's covenant unfaithfulness. And he rises victorious as the true king over God's people. This is what God is pointing us to. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious. We confess that we are sinful people, that we have transgressed your covenant, but we rejoice that you have pursued us, that you have redeemed us through the true King Jesus, who died and rose again on our behalf. We pray that, Spirit, you continue to work in our hearts and our minds, drawing us into loving, faithful relationship with you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.